Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranji Deshpande. Today, we'll be speaking with Donna Armagnac, who is a PhD, APRN, CCNS, CCRN, Director of Breast Practice, Tele-ICU Center, Tele-Health Center, and a Director for Advanced Analytics at the Baptist Health in Florida. She's also an Associate Professor at the College of Nursing and Medical University of South Carolina. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Before we start this talk, I just want to make sure if you have any disclosures to make. No disclosures. So this talk is basically focused on your wonderful talk at the SCCM uh, this year in 2019. It was a very interesting panel, and um, we are glad you were part of it. The panel was on a tele-ICU. So my first question to you is, what exactly is tele-ICU, and how is it different from telemedicine or telehealth? It's actually all all the same. Tele-ICU is ICU-delivered care by intensivists and experienced critical care faculty, nurses, pharmacists. It's the same as regular ICU care. It's just the mode of delivery happens to be uh, remote. Excellent. So it's all big umbrella that has these smaller parts in it. That's, that's great. Yes. In fact, it's evolved from... We call it the hub and spoke model, whereby the care delivered is expanding outside the walls of ICU to many locations. So how does that affect outcomes in, when you talk about ICU patients? Ah, well, we have several, several examples of how it does, in fact, affect outcomes. The general literature surrounding tele-ICU is that it's had impact on ICU mortality, hospital mortality, ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, and those are the general ICU outcomes. The literature recently has been showing that places that have seen the greatest benefit are organizations that had high severity adjusted mortality before their programs started, and they were able to see the greatest benefit those organizations that had, as I said, high severity adjusted mortality. So do you mean these ICUs would benefit smaller centers or centers where there are there aren't many intensivists? Well that is a a use case of tele ICU and folks have used the analogy if you have a great gym that you're a member of and you won't receive the benefits of the gym membership unless you, you know, use it to its full extent. And that's the same with tele-ICU. It's all dependent on how it is used in the particular environment where it is. We've had great results regarding application to not just ICU, but to progressive care, to cardiology, to the emergency environment. We've used it for disasters and all the areas that we have applied it to, we've seen, we've seen the benefit. You also mentioned that it's basically taking the ICUs out of the ICU to different locations like floors maybe or ED. So yeah. how do you see that fitting in? Like how does a tele-ICU move from an ICU to the floor or to the emergency department? Well, essentially, you're bringing ICU care to non-ICU locations. The example of the emergency department, we used it for surges in the ED. 
um, decompression of ED patients. Um, we use the platform and the technology and we enabled on-call ED physicians to do teletriage. And we have observed that our door to doc and our door to decision, uh, two of the metrics that are followed in the ED had, had great improvement. The other use case in the ED was if you have an ICU patient that's in the ED awaiting their ICU bed, um, there's remote technology where the patient can be, we have a, a mobile cart that is connected to all the technology and we're able to have two-way video and monitoring of the ED patient and communication with the ED staff. And so the ICU patients can essentially manage the patient while they're awaiting their ICU bed while they're physically located in the ED. And we found that really provides a great benefit. So our, the hospital that I work in, you know, we get these emails every couple of months about hospital surge. So this would really yes. help prioritize or help with door-to-provider times, decreasing door-to-provider times, I feel. Yes, provided great benefit. Um, I have, you know, the, the, some publications on this, and we were able to demonstrate that uh, there was a significant improvement in the categories of chest and epigastric pain, abdominal pain, and, uh, and it was also predominantly for the acuity by ESI, rather, um, acuity level two and acuity level three. Um, acuity level one are essentially the traumas and the codes that are brought right back for, you know, uh, care. But the level two and the level three that need to have, you know, obviously their workup and determine what their chest pain or their epigastric pain um, is attributed to, the teletriage physician was able to assess, order all the necessary diagnostics, was able to determine, you know, what care was required for the particular ED patients and was able to expedite, you know, their care trajectory. So the telemedicine and the ED solution, it, it works for surges. Um, it's a dynamic staffing model, which enhances a capacity. Um, it also addresses high volume overload in the ED. Um, Additionally, we, we try to address patient experience. The patients themselves felt like they were, you know, VIPs. And so the program was directly endorsed by the patients, the staff, the providers. And one thing that the providers found very beneficial, the ED docs, they really felt they were able to focus in on one particular patient, uh, you know, without all the distractions that are normally taking place in the ED. And they also felt that they were able to confer with their colleagues and discuss cases, you know, with the on-site EDs. So everyone that was involved in the process found great benefit. This looks like you're shifting the workload a little bit to the tele-ICU physician or provider and offloading the ED, maybe, you know, maybe slightly or significantly, depending on how busy the ED can be. We found significant benefits. As it relates to the ED, it was ED physicians that did the remote triage, but when the patients required ICU level care, 
the ICU folks in the EIC in the tele ICU um, managed the case until the patient was able to be transferred to um, the physical location of the ICU. So definitely, you know, an ICU patient in the ED is is a challenge for everybody. The quality of care seems to to be better with this tele ICU modality. Are there any studies? that look at this, you know, cost versus outcomes or length of stay in the ICU? Yes, there are, there are many studies. Um, some of the chief investigators that have demonstrated cost benefit, you know, Craig Lilly has published, you know, a significant paper in, in chest surrounding, you know, cost benefit. Um, we have observed uh, LOS benefit and LOS in turn, um, affords cost savings. So we were able to demonstrate cost avoidances with LOS benefits. So LOS meaning length of stay, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. So, you know, when we talk about, you mentioned something about patient patients are happier with tele-ICU care. How do their families feel? There is very limited human interaction uh, when you have a monitor coming in and telling what to do. How is that taken by the families or even a patient who's not that sick, but, you know, can, can uh, have a conversation with the provider? Well, we have incorporated remote telemedicine, telehealth um, as routine standard of care. And the patient's and the family are able to see two-way video and see the image of the provider through the camera at the bedside. So they're able to converse and see who, who the people are that are, you know, monitoring their family member, and they can ask any questions. And whenever a, a tele staff member goes into a patient room, we have a little doorbell and the person introduces themselves in the room. And um, so the folks at the bedside are communicating. It's not just a, um, it's not just somebody camera in the room. It's a person they're able to see. The other stuff that I was, you know, very intrigued by your talk was a mention of this theory that I'd never heard before. Ember's theory. Yes. We're actually doing more research into this, you know, as we speak. As you know, bedside intensivist, 24-hour, 24-7 bedside intensivist is kind of the, the model that folks aspire to. And in our organization, as well as other organizations, there's a variety of different models at the bedside. We're a large system, so some of our hospitals do, in fact, have the 24-7 intensivist model, and some of them have predominantly managed by the tele-intensivist. So we looked at, is there any difference between the predominantly managed intensivist model and the more predominant tele-intensivist model? And so we, we found that in the areas where their severity-adjusted mortality was equivalent, and was greater than 30% expected mortality, we found that there really was no difference in, um, in outcomes. But what we learned was the patients that had a, a less than 30% risk of mortality, there was significant benefits. Um, so the more the teleintensivists were utilized in the case, and the more interventions that the teleintensivist um, applied to the patient, um, 
there was a a very significant benefit for the patients who had a lower acuity, and there was also a LOS benefit and um, a bed utilization benefit. So we call it the embers theory because we believe that uh, the bedside intensivists are taking care of the fires, if you will, taking care of the most urgent needs of the patients, and the less sick patients maybe are, you know, not um, not intervened on, you know, as frequently because, you know, they're they're more stable. So the teleintensivist um, model seems to be advancing the care of the less uh, severely ill patients such that they're, they have great, greater outcomes and they're also able to move out of the ICU um, and have days saved. So we're thinking that those embers, we're calling them the patients that aren't the, the big fires, are able to receive great benefit from the teleintensivists because the teleintensivists are, you know, advancing their care. Excellent. So um, when you have a patient in the ICU with a tele-ICU setup, my belief is you need to have either a licensed individual provider or a really good nurse by the bedside who can feed in the physical finding exams and all, all that stuff to the tele-ICU. Is that the right thought? Well, routine standards of care with ICU staff always is taking place you know, throughout the whole process. And the folks that are staffing in the tele-ICU, it's a board-certified intensivist, and also um, highly expert critical care nurses. So there's more expertise in the tele-ICU for, you know, the system. Um, We're finding that the staff at the bedside, they're newer staff, they're turning over more frequently, they have less experience. So the folks that have the most experience are actually the ones in the tele-ICU. So the bedside staff are seeking, um, you know, their expert consult and their expert guidance um, as they're taking care of the patients at the bedside. It doesn't change anything that goes on at the bedside, it just provides, I would say, enhancement. Going back to the embers theory, so I think this embers theory would be of extreme value in triaging RRTs or rapid response teams. Has anyone looked at utilizing this for RRT-specific events in the hospital? As a matter of fact, yes. We have some mobile, technologically equipped carts and when code rescues or, or code blues are taking place during the hospital, the staff will bring, you know, the mobile technology. And yes, the, the tele staff, tele intensivists are assisting in, in managing the code and managing the patient, you know, while they're awaiting transfer to the intensive care unit. So essentially it is a code rescue team delivered via the mode of the technology. As you know, in the hospital, you can have several codes going on at once. Having the tele-intensivist or the tele-rapid response code team able to respond and manage the patients in collaboration with the bedside has, has been a great great advantage. This is great in places where, you know, I shouldn't say in places where, but in pretty much every hospital, 
where uh, ICU resources are extremely, extremely limited. That is correct. And I believe your hospital now covers a lot of different places. So this would be great for hospitals or healthcare systems like uh, Baptist Health. Well, and as I said, even the more evolved hospitals or the folks that have 24-7 intensivists, they're taking care of the fires, so to speak, and the tele-ICU can, you know, make sure that the embers don't blaze into fires. Where do you see tele-ICU moving from here? Laser focus in on best practice opportunities. Everyone is, you know, monitoring their best practices for adherence, for outcomes, and, you know, ensuring that we're providing, you know, the best evidence-based care to patients. At the tele-ICU level, you have, you know, the highest level overview over all aspects of patient care, and you have all the data at your disposal, and you have all of the cognitive affordances. You're able to ensure that these best practices are are provided, you know, along the trajectory of of care of patients. For example, one everyone has areas where we can approve. One area in our particular organization is uh, length of stay on the vent. We are able to look at all of our ventilated patients, you know, appraise where they are and advance their vent liberation protocols and advance, you know, the point where they're able to be extubated. So that's one area of laser focus that that we're working on. Um, Glycemic management, blood transfusions, I mean, many different areas that all ICU practitioners are looking to, you know, uh, make sure that we're, we're doing the best that we can. So that is even better for ICU practice, but we're also um, using the tele-ICU, we're calling it the hub and spoke, where telemedicine and telehealth is expanding expanding way beyond the walls of the ICU, as I I made note, you know, progressive care, um, emergency, and so on. But we're also expanding to the point of we're providing benefits on cruise ships. Um, we have a relationship with one of the larger cruise lines that um, uh, the tele consult is able to appraise what's going on with the patients on the ships because the ships have to make decisions of whether to change their course or to um, get a patient off the ship. And so the tele intensivists or the tele care team, you know, is able to appraise the situation, you know, guide the the remote location and, you know, help triage the patients to appropriate levels of care. So that, that's another. Um, here in South Florida, we have lots of hurricanes, and that's a whole, you know, disaster response solution that, you know, we've utilized this, this uh, center for. So I, there's an individual that uses the phrase, wherever you have a healthcare need, you can put tele in front of it and, you know, add some extra resources. So what, what do you think are the drawbacks or fallacies or, you know, things that we need to improve on with tele-ICU or telehealth? The greatest, well, after you, um, you know, you consider the cost. Of course, we're all cost conscious. There is an upfront cost, big upfront, you know, capital expenditure to get one of these centers going. There's ongoing operational costs and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's 
there's no revenue generated for this service in in our state. There is other states that there's reimbursement for teleservices. So that's a that's a variable thing that we're hoping to advance. But there's obviously the operational cost, the capital cost. Um, so after you put all of those things into consideration, what makes or breaks the success of a telecenter is the relationship on both sides of the camera and the uh, the common goals of individuals on both sides of the camera. We're all in it together kind of you know mentality. Um, the thing that tends to limit the success of tele-ICUs is truthfully um, the cultures of, of the organization. Um, we've gone through our own cultural challenges and in different hospitals, you know, it's utilized, you know, more or less depending on the, the culture of the organization. So I would say that common goals and, and relationships and communication are likely the most vital element of this. We can have the best technology in the world and we can have the best practitioners in the world, but having the relationships and the and the mutually desired partnerships are what will make this successful. No, thank you. I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a lot of support, you know, that you need from not just not just providers, but also from leadership and maybe policies to help this move to the next level. So Donna, how, how do you figure out if your tele-ICU is really helping the organization? Well, the tele-ICU helps to fulfill the promise of healthcare technology. Um, it provides practitioners with certain analytic design principles, which are built into the technology. We have predictive analytics that consume massive quantities of all sorts of pieces of data that are generated in the electronic health record. And it's able to distill and do, you know, complex multivariate analysis on these data and is able to determine, you know, acuity and risk and, and flags. And the EICU staff has to consume that data and be able to put it put it to good use for the patient. And it also displays the data in a way that's consumable to the practitioner. We know that we're having tons of data, you know, given to us, and what do we do with all of this data? So the tele-ICU absolutely plays a role in being the consumer, distiller, and um, finding out if this data, you know, provides meaning to, you know, to the bedside practitioners. Um, additionally, there is a tremendous amount of amassment of pieces of data or points, points of um, importance when you're delivering care of the patient. So we can examine the data retrospectively and we can, you know, apply some machine learning types of algorithms and we can learn what all this data means and then we can uh, apply it in a prospective way um, for patients. And what I believe is happening here is we are predicting and preventing events as opposed to recognizing and responding to events. 
in the organization in the hospitals the intensive care units oftentimes we are recognizing things and responding to things we're not necessarily predicting and preventing and i believe that this methodology and this level of care enables prediction and prevention no i agree we have to be proactive versus retroactive is what i say you know we we can't we we have to prevent harm and not react mm-hmm. when there is harm so i think this is um, this is a good way of looking at how tele icus can uh, help the institute um and you know even this could be a way of having the hospitals buy in to tele icu for not just you know outreach to the icus but using the tele icu software for different regions in the hospital like you had mentioned earlier yes i i do agree with that and um we have a responsibility also to examine you know the influence of the telemedicine tele icu the telehealthcare and we're traditionally we would conduct analyses to determine superiority of one intervention over another but what we're seeing here is that we're having an incremental um uh cost benefit and quality benefit for our patients thank you again for spending these minutes with us uh this concludes another edition of the i critical care podcast for i critical care podcast i'm your host dr ranjit deshpande thank you dana thank you dr ranjit deshpande dr ranjit deshpande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the yale new haven hospital ynhh His interests include organ transplantation and point of care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital. after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine his interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family playing tennis and squash join or renew your membership with sccm the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org/membership for more information the i critical care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the society of critical care medicine or its officers or members